the question that you should ask yourself always is, why are you drawing this? What are you trying to show? And if the answer is not clear for you, it will never be clear for your audience. So you need to understand what it is that forces you to sit down, take out your, your tools, and it's, it's, it's an effort. It's an effort to, to do that. We all kind of struggle with that hesitation. Oh, do I have enough time? <laughs> is the light going to change? Is it going to start raining? Oh, I'm feeling kind of hungry. <laughs> so it's a challenge to kind of force yourself to do that. But once you start doing that, keep asking yourself, what are you trying to show? Why is this scene worth your attention and your time as an artist? And why would it be worth the time of the people who will be looking at it? Hopefully, many, many people for many years to come. Welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. On this show, I speak with artists who come from different backgrounds with unique motivations and distinct ideas, united by a single purpose, to draw or paint their world and the life they see in it. For centuries, art has been a way for us to see other worlds and the vision of artists living there. But at the same time, intentionally or otherwise, a person's art tells us just as much about the person themselves. I've mentioned on the show before that you can sit two artists down on the same bench and find that they end up drawing completely different things. What we see and what we depict, what we focus on and what we look past. These are indications of who we are and the stories we want to tell. My guest today tells diverse, fascinating stories through her work. I was enthralled by Rita Sabler's work when I saw her drawings of protests in Portland, most recently the Black Lives Matter rallies to honor George Floyd. She has taken upon the role of a sketch journalist, traveling to destinations that interest her and documenting through art the stories that she finds. We look at the why of her work and attempt to understand the place that art has in today's world of mass media and short attention spans. This, then, is the subject of our conversation. I am fascinated by artists who draw for more reasons than simple beauty. I strongly relate to her desire of communicating thoughts and ideas about the world that she lives in, and I take great inspiration from Rita's efforts to do so through urban sketching. I am sure you will too. Hello, Rita, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I am so happy to speak with you today. Likewise. Very honored to be here and fantastic to see your face. I, I think we've known about each other for a while, so it's it's great to be here and, and um, actually look at your eyes when I'm talking to you. So, Rita, I, what I love about doing this show, and I do all of this myself, it's a completely independent production, so... What I really enjoy about that aspect is that I get to call the shots in a sense. I get to run it the way I want. I get to have conversations with the people I want to speak with. 
and about the things that I want to speak with them about. And the thing that really fascinates me about urban sketchers and people who paint on location in general is that they are they come from such a wide array of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Not only their backgrounds are different, but also their motivations are so different. So why they're doing this thing differs a lot. And we could be doing the same kind of things, but with completely different motivations and sometimes with completely different ends in mind. So I know there are many urban sketchers who use urban sketching as a way to improve certain skills in other mediums of art that they otherwise operate in. For some, it is a way to unwind. For some, the art that they make as an urban sketch is the end product in itself, and that becomes a print or they sell that art and use it in various ways. But then there are others who are using the art as a vehicle to tell a story. And I feel like that's sort of the club that you are part of. And I really find that very interesting because then the art is not just the lines that have been made and the colors that have been chosen or the compositional choices. Because on all of those fronts, your art is really beautiful. You do such a great job. But I feel like I derive an equal amount of enjoyment just from trying to read your captions and then trying to see why you did what you did, why you are showing me what you're showing me. So I visited your website as in preparation for this conversation, and I looked through some of these fascinating projects that you have worked on. And I'm thinking about, uh, to get us started, I'm thinking about the one about border towns, when you visited Nogales in Arizona, which is at the border with Mexico. Mm -hmm. And this is a very fascinating place because it seemed to have such distinctly different identities, depending on which side of the border you are on but also depending on whether that border in itself is porous or if it is more restricted and sealed. Tell me a little bit about this project, about how you thought about doing it, the concept of it, whether it was your own idea and your own motivation to do this. And what was this, what was this motivation with which you entered it? So starting with a pretty serious topic right away. (laughs) Um, This project was born out of the national conversation that was very, very emotional, very strong, and very confusing at times, because uh, as you remember, the previous administration in the United States has placed a lot of emphasis on on the border, on security, on immigration, on the dangers uh, perceived or alleged connected to people from from south southern um, countries in the south of the United States. And there was a lot of talk about the border and strengthening it, building the wall. It was something that was very popular um, in politics and media, something that we heard every every day. So that curiosity was born out of that out of listening and hearing this this rhetoric, I think there were uh, several journalists who were also interested in, in what is actually involved in in building a wall on the southern border. It's a huge stretch of land. Um, a lot of it is very sparsely populated. There uh, goes through deserts. It goes through um, some of, some of the borders is formed by the natural barriers like the river. There are mountains. 
what I was really interested about is in sort of the physicality of the wall itself, especially where it comes in tight contact with the communities that live there. So that naturally led me to to places like Nogales, where you have an existing town on both sides. And there are, I believe, about 16 border towns on the southern wall. So I'm interested in urban centers, not so much where the borders is marked by the natural markers in the geography, but where you have this community. A lot of times it has really strong ties on both ends. You have families sometimes living on both ends. You have children, schools, commercial life of the city on both ends. And then you have this enormous physical object of a wall kind of splitting it apart and what what would it look like what would it feel like to live in the vicinity of of an object like that especially when a lot of national attention and politics and media is focused on that so Nogales is a really great example it's not a huge town but it's it's it is a town nonetheless it's it's a lot more dense and populous on the Mexican side than on the US side it's located in the state of Arizona in the US and Sonora in Mexico and so I I went there because shortly before I went there the federal um Authorities directed by the the past administration came there to do something called hardening, um, the the hardening measures. So they installed this, what's called a concertina wire, this razor wire on on the U.S. side, and it's a very um, it's a very unsightly. It's it's very dangerous to come close to it, and yet you have families, kids, pets in the vicinity of that. And and even the mayor of Nogales, when the installation was taking place, he did not know that that was going to happen. So it was a, a huge surprise, I can imagine, for, for people of Nogales to wake up to this sort of, to this big change. And the this, this changes like that took place over the years gradually. The wall was there. The, sep- the separation was very subtle at first, uh, I think the wall was built shortly after the attacks of September 11th. Then it was gradually hardened until it's kind of taken more and more shape of, of this militarized prison, prison almost feel for, for the people of Nogales. So I wanted to experience what the object looks like. What does it feel like to be in its shadow? <laughs> what do those spikes and razors look like? How does the community react? I, I wanted to talk to business owners on the U.S. side. They they heavily depend on people coming from Mexico and and purchasing goods and doing simple things like even shopping for milk. So it was amazing to to be there. I made some contacts also through drawing and documented as much as I could with the idea of coming back which hasn't happened because of the pandemic. The wall, uh, the, the border was closed to non-essential traffic until November of, of uh, 2021. So a lot of a lot of interesting things are happening there. So this is a long-winded answer, hopefully long enough, about about the the interest in that particular project. And so I'm curious to know if was this project completely your motivation and your idea? Did you go in there as an individual person trying to document something. And 
if if so what is it that what is this process of finding stories i'm so curious about it because i read your account of it and you speak about for example i was particularly enamored by the story of the bridal wear shop and as you mentioned these things uh, these changes come into your lives and into these people's environments and what's fascinating is the way that they just deal with it that everyday life has to find ways around these obstacles wherever they may come from simply because they're so out of our control so what was it like for you to see people living their lives in situations and circumstances so starkly different from ours but trying to live a life very much like ours nonetheless uh so the motivation was completely mine i was um as i mentioned i got interested in in sort of the the effects of of living in the proximity of a wall for people in the communities that live there so it's something that i wanted to explore i did not have um any idea and as, as a journalist you need to come to a project with sort of at least a hypothesis of what you think you will find of what kind of stories you will find my interest is usually as as an artist born out of a visual thing so i i wanted to see sort of visually what it was like but as 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 often as the case you come there with kind of with an open mind i wanted i i had an idea of who i wanted to talk to i wanted to talk to the border patrol officers i wanted to talk to people who have families on both sides and who i met that that had sort of the most storytelling potential in my view was the business owner who owned who still owns uh, a series of shops and one of the, their main shops is actually a bridal shop that's located right near the wall right across from the wall so i did ask him why was the choice to to put the store there you know it's not it's not a very pretty place <laughs> it doesn't doesn't seem like it would be a good business decision and what he told me is a really telling story about um about how the the border really functions for for people who live in the in the vicinity of of the border wall. So he said it was a very practical business decision because they knew that most of their customers would be coming from Mexico. Not all of them have the the shopping permit or the the visa permit to come in and shop. So they need to be able to see the merchandise if they're buy, buying a bridal dress or if they're buying a, a, a very fancy dress for a quinceanera party, which is uh, when a girl turns 15 in Mexico, her whole family celebrates. It's sort of like coming of age. It's a huge, huge deal in, in, in Mexico. They would be able to, to show the dress through the openings in the, in the wall to the other side. So then if the family likes what they see, they could set, they could send a neighbor or, or someone to go pick it up later. Uh, someone who has the, the right paperwork to cross the border. So it's, it's the um, finding stories like that, that I think is sort of the, the reward for your initial interest. You know, like I said, I didn't know that I would, that would be something I find. And I didn't even know that, people regularly cross the border just to buy things like dresses or or shop for their groceries and that's what i that's what i discovered and i thought that was um it's it's such a small uh slice of of life there and and how things work and it i think tells kind of a, a bigger story about what 
the experience of living in a community like that is like for people. Right. And and how does this bridal shop operate today now that things are less porous than before? Or I mean at the time that you visited. Right. So now now it's 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 everything is a lot more complicated with the hardening the hardening measures of the wall with um, everything being so closed. Of course, the pandemic and, and the border being closed for 18 months was devastating for communities like Nogales that depend so heavily on traffic back and forth. So I think um, I haven't been back to the border, but I maintain uh, a frequent contact with my with the connections that I made while I was there and I check in on them. And most of the shops have closed in the town of Nogales on the, on the U S side. Um, there are other towns in the vicinity that kind of are turning into ghost towns slowly because of, because of the hardening measures and the, the lack of traffic. So you have uh, historic towns that all the shop fronts are shut down. There's, there's no, population is slowly leaving or dying out. So it's interesting to see that evolution or devolution, I guess, um, of what's happening in those communities. Now, I, I find it interesting that when you think of yourself as a journalist, I find it interesting that that the motivations might change from if you thought of yourself as an artist first. And I'm, I'm thinking about this with respect to, you know, finding stories or having stories come to you. And it seems from your accounts also, in some cases, a lot of these stories finding their way to you is about you waiting around for them to do that and being at the right place and waiting for the right time to arrive. And in other cases, you go looking, which seems like a very journalistic approach to to, to matters. So uh, what? how do you reconcile these two roles within you, the artist and the journalist? And uh, how does how does that pan out when you're when you're at a location and you don't know the place, but this is the kind of brief that you've given yourself? So this is a great question because it's a it's it's always a struggle and it's it's an evolution of my approach. Um, mo- I think most artists and most urban sketchers can relate to this fear of of sort of more active. Um, journalistic approach of, of of going and being visible, starting conversations. I think most of us prefer to kind of sit in the dark corner and be ignored, <laughs> feel like flies on the wall. Yeah, so makes we w- art. Exactly. We, we don't want to be discovered. We don't want to be bothered. We don't want to be talked to. Um, we are, most of us are introverts and we, we like to be kind of left to our own devices and hopefully something interesting happens. Usually it doesn't, uh, when you're so invisible, when you're, when you're kind of hiding, when you're too far away from, from people. So this is something that I have struggled with myself and I've noticed that the approach has has changed over time. So I always use drawing as my way of, of connecting with people, but letting them approach me. So when you draw in public, you do attract attention. People do want to come up because it's it's it still is a pretty unusual thing. So they do come up to you, they ask you questions, and I use this as kind of my way to to get to know them and to, to have a conversation. And 
and using sort of like laying out the little pieces of fruit for the fruit flies to come in and talk to me. So that was my approach for a while. And then before that, it was always, you know, don't talk to me. I'm very shy. You know, leave me alone. Um, and I think gradually what I came to understand, and this is very, it still is pretty recent to me as I'm kind of morphing more into an artist reporter, not so much just a, a sketcher. I, I noticed that I started to reach out myself a, a lot more. I'm very curious about things that I'm experiencing and, and people that I'm seeing. So I start to approach people more and it's, um, it feels more comfortable that way to, to also come out of my shell and, and ask people if, if they could answer a few questions or if they don't mind being drawn or, or if, you know, I explain, I show them what I do. And usually that's, that's sort of your license and the bridge to people when they see what you're doing. They they don't feel threatened. They they feel curious. They feel honored. Um, a lot of times they stop and chat, which is great. I mean, I absolutely resonate with all of that. Those have been exactly my experiences. And yet I find myself in this first group that you mentioned who are doing their best to not be noticed my whole a persona is around not being noticed in public spaces. And I think it's just it's just part of who I am as a person manifesting in who I am as an artist. But at that same time, I recognize the value, the, the immense value you get from participating in that environment, from asking questions or from being involved with the, the stories around you rather than, you know, the, the value of being a fly on the wall. Each of those things seems to have its place. But as a person who's tried to be a fly on the wall for so many years, now I'm feeling the need to go outside my shell. I'm mixing up so many metaphors now in <laughs> hybrid creature. There's a lot of insects in this conversation. A lot of insects, yes. <laughs> so I feel like I need to come out of this, uh, the, the, the shell of the fly and become into something else like metamorphose. So here's another mixed metaphor for you. But uh, so uh, coming back to being a journalist, I'm curious because journalists are speaking to somebody. They're trying to share with someone. And you mentioned that this was a self-motivated project for you. So when you see yourself as a journalist in this respect, to whom are you telling these stories? Do you have someone in mind for these various projects? Are they different people? Or do you have someone central in mind that you're trying to address? We try to avoid the term general public, informing general public. You always think have to think of a specific audience. But I think depending on the project, um, it could be interesting to, to different people. But the unifying force behind all of this when you work as an artist as opposed to as a photographer or, or if you're a, a writer mostly or, or video videographer, there are so many ways to tell stories. So by using art as my medium, obviously I already draw a certain type of audience who who trusts artists to tell to tell the stories or who is attracted by the novelty of, of using art um, as, as a reportage tool, which when I say novelty, <laughs> it, it's been around much longer than anything else um, as a reporting tool. 
That's how we used to communicate visual information at all times before the invention of photography. It became novel again just because it got completely overshot and overshadowed by the invention of, of photography, video, and, and so on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've discussed this previously with uh, some other guests as well. This subject is very interesting to me uh, uh, because I partly come from uh, an engineering background. So I've always thought about things in terms of information packets, uh, how we consume media and photography and videography and tweets, TikToks. They are all different forms of in- packets of information. And then I think about how the sketch or the painting is another packet of information. So I really like what you said. And I agree with uh, the, the basic premise that it's a novelty because it went out of vogue and it is now in vogue again. Why do you think that is? Well, there's been several theories on the subject of, of why even urban sketching became as popular as it has become. And one of the theories is that it's our oversaturation with digital imagery, uh, with taking photographs at all times. We have um, it became almost second nature. We take photos constantly. You you hear shutters. You hear you see phones. You see selfies. You see selfie sticks anywhere you go these days. So maybe it's sort of this kind of counter counter reaction to it it's enough you know we want to look at things in different ways i always tell my students too that we sort of outsourced our ability to look and experience things to our cameras sometimes we just take a photo instead of instead of looking uh instead of trying to record understand something commit to it with our brains we take a photo for later to to examine it (laughs) when we have a minute and unfortunately, that's become a second nature for us. And we've forgotten how to experience things, how to look at them, how to really understand what we're looking at, ask questions right on the spot. So that's what urban sketching essentially forces us to do. And I think that's that's the, the appeal of it for a lot of people is, is being invited to really look at things through with their eyes while they're there, experience it fully. Right. But do you think it's becoming a more unreasonable to ask from people? You know, we're, we're such a, uh, like what's popularly, uh, we, we call ourselves a short attention span society. Is, is that task essentially like set up for failure? Is it possible to ask people to give us time and attention? Like, how, do, how does that work? How, how can it possibly succeed in today's time? Your, is your question for for the audience of uh, who's, who's consuming our work or for us as artists or sketchers who are, who are producing it? Well, as artists to produce something and then to demand that from the audience that... I would like five minutes of your time. It seems like it is such an impossible thing to ask. <laughs> five minutes is way too long. <laughs> you can only you can only hope for five seconds of someone's right. attention. Yes, it's it's a good question, especially for once that novelty is 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 worn off. If you're if you're showing somebody's your work for the first time, it does always generate attention from almost everybody universally. 
But then when they're looking at your hundredth <laughs> sketch, you know, when they're leafing through your sketchbook and, and by the time they hit page number 56, maybe that attention wanes. So how do you keep that attention is a good question. I think it's a, it's a struggle. It's a challenge for, for all of us. For me, the answer is, is always evolving both in my technique as an artist, but also in my understanding of the world and the stories that I'm paying attention to and the stories that I'm showing so that it's always relevant and fresh and, and a little bit different. Don't, don't stay in one spot. Keep evolving. Keep learning. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great answer. And thinking of this dual role then of being somebody who is telling stories as a journalist and somebody who is depicting the world as they see it through their art, and now thinking about this evolving role, like leaning a little bit on one side for a few years, like I had this early phase when I started urban sketching in which every day felt like I'm drawing something that I've never been able to draw before. So every day was like a sharp jump in my abilities. And now I'm able to draw this. Now I'm able to draw perspective, et cetera, et cetera. But then that game changed because you can't just keep climbing that same mountain. Now it's about so what? Like, what? why am I showing this thing? So now in the position that you're in, uh, how, do you, how do you find these two roles balancing for you? Does For you, when you're at a location, and I'm thinking about all these different places, not only Nogales, but also you were in, 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 on that uh, in, uh, interesting island in Hawaii. I'm thinking about, does the story come first or does that sketch location come to you first? Are you still uh, letting the words come after the art? Or does the art follow the story and the conversations and the various things you want to explicitly say? So the the answer to that is one thing that you already said yourself, and that is the question, the very simple three-letter word is why. So I invite also myself and my students and people um, who follow me always ask that question first. So when whenever you decide to to draw something and and sometimes it's just a matter of, of a challenge you know I, I really want to get this perspective right or it's an extreme angle or it's a very dynamic scene or the colors or the light but this is the challenge for you from the technique standpoint the audience won't care the the question that you should ask yourself always is why are you drawing this what are you trying to show and if the answer is not clear for you it will never be clear for your audience. So you need to understand what it is that forces you to sit down, take out your, your tools, and it's, it's, it's an effort. It's an effort to, to do that. We all kind of struggle with that hesitation. Oh, do I have enough time? <laughs> is the light going to change? Is it going to start raining? Oh, I'm feeling kind of hungry. <laughs> so it's a challenge to kind of force yourself to do that. But once you start doing that, keep asking yourself, what are you trying to show? Why is this scene worth your attention and your time as an artist? And why would it be worth the time of the people who will be looking at it? Hopefully, many, many people for many years to come. <laughs> well, I, I think that's such an important question. Now, as somebody who's a self-taught artist, I've, I've felt for a long time that I don't have any essential business being here. I'm only doing this because I really want to do it. So I've had to answer that question for myself. Why am I doing this? I could be doing something else. My lifelong dream was to be a writer. 
why is this art coming into this? And I had to find and articulate specific reasons to myself in order to do it. And the more that I articulate this reason out into the world, I find that I'm also able to therefore reach the kind of audience that wants this kind of this kind of art, this kind of content, content being a slightly pejorative word almost, but that's that's essentially what it is amongst all the other content on the internet. Why should somebody give me their precious five seconds? Uh, do you think this is a question, therefore, that not only should every artist ask of themselves, but do you think they also bear some obligation to explain whether explicitly or implicitly to their audience? Yes, absolutely. They, um, we should strive to, to make it worth the time uh, that we spend drawing something and understanding something and honoring the, the place or the people that we meet, um, by, you know, you're, you're almost acting as an advocate for, for whatever it is you're drawing because you're, translating it into the medium of, of drawing you're injecting it with your own style personality technique so you're making it timeless in a way you're recording it you're documenting it um and you're 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 advocating for it so it's it's a huge responsibility and going back to something you said in the uh, previous question about writing drawing i think we think of the separation i think it's more of a of a continuum the 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 lines of your drawing sort of sometimes grow into your into your writing into your words not everything could be captured with with lines and shapes and colors so when you draw with all of your senses even if you're not if you don't think of yourself as a storyteller as a writer a lot of my students always ask me, but I don't know, I finished drawing this, but I don't know what to write. What should I write? It's almost, it feels like a, a, another effort already. I've done this. Now, what do I have to write if I don't have anything to write? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I tell them is, is when you draw with all of your senses, it's not just the, the visual sense, but things that you hear, things that you experience with your, with your skin, with, uh, with the sense of smell, the weather, things that are really hard to to sort of translate to to colors and shapes and lines, you use your words to to help you kind of complete that picture. Even right. if people don't read it, even if their language is 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 different from from the audience's language, we know that there's something else is there. It's not just the, the 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 shapes, colors, and lines. It's mm-hmm. there's another level of of perception, another level of experience that is there. Um, it'll also if you if you use drawing as kind of a recording tool for for your experiences as a journal, as it were, it will also bring back a lot of memories, things that that you've experienced in that moment. Maybe it, some passing thoughts that you had, some sounds that you can write down that you overheard um so don't think of it as kind of a separate thing you finish the drawing then you write the description think of it as as kind of one cohesive whole i often record also the the bits of conversation always drawn to conversations people the the hilarious things that they're saying so that's that's another thing that i that i often run write down because it's 
I will forget <laughs> if I don't write it down. But it was part of that experience. It's not just this magical sunset on the on the hillside. It's also people talking about um, discussing mundane things that are very part of that of that landscape for me. Right. That that's so true. I I find that uh, whenever I look back at my old sketchbooks. Whatever page I open out to, like you mentioned, the tools that we use determine certain things that we can depict. And then these whole host of other things that we cannot depict. And in my case, it's just the one fountain pen. So I'm very good at depicting shapes and the relative sizes of things. But I don't tell you about colors. I don't tell you about shadows very often. And then all these other senses. And I find that in these pages, these senses are almost trapped waiting for me. Whenever I turn to them, they just come roaring back to me and I can again remember the music I was listening to mm-hmm. or if I was sitting next to someone or if I was cold or hot or comfortable or uncomfortable. And all of these things are as if they're trapped inside these pages. And I feel like there is value in sharing this. But what often happens is we think about whether anybody cares about looking at this because this question of what do people really care about looking at and what they what i can give them that they like is so packed in with so many different factors like we were just talking about attention spans and low attention spans are not necessarily a factor of your work or the quality of your work it's simply the uh, an operating principle of instagram If they're on Facebook or Instagram, they are going to scroll and asking them to not scroll is asking them to do something that the whole algorithm is the billions of dollars worth of algorithm is designed to make them keep doing. So we don't unpack it, but we take it upon ourselves. Maybe the art is not good enough. Maybe my ideas are just not good enough, but simply the platform is not right for this kind of engagement. So I find that a lot of artists are, and I've been in this position myself, that we are just hesitant to share these other things that we have to say. And so we stick to what we think are our core strengths. These lines that I drew are pretty. And this is all that I'm confident about. Nobody cares about any of that other stuff. So when you started doing this thing of really expressing yourself, how how did that go for you? Was there a lot of, what kind of obstacles were in your way? How many of those obstacles were of your own creation? Well, the last thing that was on my mind was probably the Facebook algorithm. I maybe it, it sounds selfish, but I don't think too much about the people who are who are looking at my work. I think about recording. I'm I'm sort of obsessively documenting what I'm seeing. Even if it's just it's just for myself, a lot of my writing was was very hard to read uh before. Um, so I know that I was doing it for myself to 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 really understand that moment, to really experience it. I I th- I was just thinking about that was important in that moment. That scene, I wanted to preserve it forever. It's it's really the 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 feeling of possessing something is is when you feel you fully documented it. So in that way. This was never a problem or 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 worry of mine of are people going to be are they going to care are they going to worry are they going to how are they going to experience it so I think when you're when you're first doing things for yourself because that's that's your passion that's your interest 
I think it's it's hard to to find obstacles that way. <laughs> Maybe it's also very selfish. I have to think about my my audience and so on. But if I'm producing a piece for for a project that I know will be will be read and try to be understood and distilled, then obviously it's a different approach. It's it's trying to keep things as self self explanatory and clear as I can. I I feel like the selfishness is necessary at least it's it's almost like a like a self-preservation mechanism if you're not selfish to some extent you're not going to last very long and you once you externalize your sense of worth to everybody else then everybody else owns you and uh then you're you're forever chasing trends and you can never really become something and uh it's it it gets tougher the the earlier i feel that you are you enter the world of social media so i draw from these same motivations as you mentioned that while i'm drawing i'm literally only thinking about myself when i'm thinking of when i'm walking down a street and i'm looking for subjects i am explicitly not thinking about who is going to see it is it going to be worth their time i should draw things that are hashtag #worthy and i push against that feeling so i almost intentionally avoid popular locations and places where there are going to be lots of people taking photographs of themselves therefore it's going to be showing up on social media a lot and therefore that post might be popular if i drew it and i go out of my way to avoid those locations just to center it around myself again but the moment that i finish a drawing that's the moment where it sort of clicks back for me into this unhealthy place that i now feel that it's about how am how am i going to share this and i like i i write a lot around my art i write a weekly newsletter and i've been a writer before i was ever an artist but i have this incredible difficulty in writing anything on the page that i just drew on whether it's a little note whether it's a word bubble whether it's uh, you know and my thoughts and i see so many artists do it i see you do it in little clever ways you're even just marking sometimes something that you've seen like it's diagrammatic and this this is a huge stumbling block for me and i'm trying to overcome it so uh, this the, none of this was a question am i <laughs> oh, no uh, but it, a lot of it was very very interesting because i i think that hesitation is is very common and it comes from this feeling of of how we co- compartmentalize i know i had i would have problem with this word <laughs> but how we separate writing and drawing into two different spheres of our brain of activity of perceiving the world i think it maybe has to do with the way we were taught as kids you know there was a a, a writing lesson in whatever language we grew up speaking and then there was a drawing lesson which was all about colors and and shapes and expressing yourself that way there was never a lesson where you did both where you felt like one is is just on the continuum of of another so i think it's it's um it takes a lot of undoing on our part to to just to kind of bring them back together yeah you you're so right um now uh, there's this interesting thing that i also observe coming from this exact point of you know the way you are taught about things the way you are taught to value certain things and then to uh, un- uh, less give less value to some others devalue some others i think about how you can get 
a couple of artists to sit on the same bench looking in the same direction and then most of the time they'll sketch completely different things because what all urban sketchers end up painting or drawing is a function of the world they see but it is also a representation of themselves in a very core and a very real way the things that they choose to focus on the things that they choose to not focus on the tools that are essential to them the tools that are superfluous to their work and why all of these things speak to who they are so i'm thinking about the kind of things that you choose to depict and the kind of things that draw your attention that that engage your curiosity so how does who you are manifest in the things you see and the things you depict i'm curious to understand your motivation it in itself to tell stories about the world and about these incidents you see in the world tell me a little bit about where these motivations and these curiosities come from Ooh, that's uh, <laughs> that also is almost a book of an of an answer that could come from that i was just thinking about that yesterday as i'm learning about different subgenres of of journalistic writing too is the, this this curiosity this interest for me is always sort of in the individual human experience so the the story of 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 someone that i meet and how they how they see the world how their perceptions are different what is what is one thing that keeps them awake at night what is their dark side what what really motivates them excites them their passion what are some funny things that they so, say say and do so the, there's this this initial pool of of an individual and their experience and how i always compare what i think and feel is is different from other people but it's also looking for kind of universal truths to that experience so we can all relate to an experience of a mother who's worried about a child or we uh, we can relate to someone who's struggling to achieve something and to to affirm who they are and 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 the obstacles that they face so it's 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 this individual story in the context of all of our experiences and how you can find certain trends in 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 sort of the the humanity of 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 the world and and show them through that one individual person so i think that's that's one of the things that is is really moving that attracts me right now but there are other layers of course it's it's the you can translate to to places as well and and how we see um individual cities and things that make those cities unique and yet there's a commonality of of kind of an urban experience that you see everywhere you go and I'm not just talking about franchises but things that all cities have in common and yet individual characteristics as well so i think it's it's um also portraying that um there are of course um beautiful landscapes that we all like to kind of experience and sometimes draw sometimes i allow myself it's okay you don't have to tell a story you don't have to find a deeper meaning you don't have to find a conflict it's okay to just enjoy this fantastic sunset the colors the shapes the textures and and just absorb it right 
right a couple of couple of really lovely things you said there i find this such an interesting uh, dichotomy that lives inside every creative person the fact that you have to be essentially self-centered in a lot of ways but in being self-centered you have to look out at that world and you have to regard other people as themselves uh, there's this beautiful word that i read many years ago i use it in my writing a lot i don't know if you heard of it it's a word called sonder no what is it right so sonder is in this um, back in the days when blogs were a thing there was this really popular website and it's called the dictionary of obscure sorrows it's a beautiful website you should see it they've coined a lot of words but sonder i'll read out what the meaning is sonder and it says this is the realization that each random passes by is living a life as vivid and complex as your own populated with their own ambitions friends routines worries and inherited craziness an epic story that continues invisibly around you like an ant hill sprawling deep underground with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never know existed in which you might appear only once as an extra sipping coffee in the background as a blur of traffic passing on the highway as a lighted window at dusk i love it and i'm thinking about this word while you also to, uh, this uh, to this connecting it to this other point where you were mentioning what is the commonality of urban experiences and as an immigrant in this part of the world that i now live in so i came from india i went to study in the netherlands and then i jumped ship and i came to chicago i lived in wisconsin and now i'm in vancouver canada and so for the last decade of my life i have been an immigrant in these foreign places and sketching has been part of my life for only maybe the last four of the of that decade and how i've used it is that i'm looking for these commonalities of urban experiences being a foreigner being a stranger in very very strange places that i don't otherwise understand sketching and was was my excuse gave me the mandate to look at this foreign world and to find these commonalities between these foreign people and myself so that i could feel more at home and less as in, as a person completely out of their depth and these urban experiences are very interesting to me because they say these things about what a city is and that's a question that sort of runs through my mind a lot when i think about why am i drawing this what about walking around in this city makes me curious why does that make me curious what did i get out of drawing this 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 subject this person under a traffic light and i think about these these various elements of a city because not only the people not only the things they do but also the way that we interact with these elements which are common in cities around the world sort of reflects these commonalities of the urban experience that we are all in irrespective of where we are from so how we behave under a traffic light how we order coffee in a cafe what we do at a bus stop all of these things are these commonalities that we share with other people and being observers as urban sketchers sort of allows us to bond with strangers this is this is how i thought about it that it's giving me this excuse to bond with other people whom i don't have any reason to otherwise be in conversation with so uh you have come also from different different places you've studied in a different place you were born somewhere else how has it been for you to be exploring this this new world that you're also in for several years and uh, what part has sketching played in that 
that's that's an excellent point and i think as as an immigrant as a as a newcomer as as a traveler you appreciate the power of new information it could be disorienting it could be overwhelming it could be fascinating you want to first of all understand it process it and what, what a better way of doing it than than drawing it because it it really kind of slows you down tunes you in into the space and it also makes the place yours in a way if you draw that you own it there's there's this again the, this idea of ownership why do we why do we even take photos of something that's that's beautiful when you see something beautiful you want to have it you want to possess it same same with mm-hmm. with interesting novel experiences you want to remember you want to possess it so drawing allows you to do that for for a short time and then to keep it forever right as your as as your tool of processing so and that goes again to not just the processing a new place as an immigrant but also why there is such a intimate link between travel and drawing is when we're in a place for the first time we're just bombard it with um inspiration with with this new novel experience um that is so fresh you just <laughs> the first time i arrive in a place i just can't stop drawing it's almost i produce six seven spreads every day because it's it's so fascinating for me everything is new i want to capture it as as fresh as it comes and then once you're in a place for a while, things that, that used to surprise you, used to be new and unusual, they're, they're just sort, sort of fade into the background. They become just part of your everyday noise, everyday um, atmosphere. So I, I think that that's the power of, of, of the new experience, new travel, being somewhere for the first time. It's, it's both overwhelming and and beautiful and inspirational and and for for visual artists it's 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 fantastic so how do you experience a place that you've been to uh, for a while or where you live maybe you've always been in the same place how do you keep that freshness of approach is is a fantastic challenge right how do you experience your neighborhood as if you're looking at it for the first time or maybe you live in a place where there's so much change and variation in neighborhoods. So you could invite yourself to to come to a new place and and document it and once again experience it from a, from a different perspective. So things that you you see every time and you ignore, how do you tune into them and and bring that freshness and bring that curiosity that forces you to look at them from a fresh perspective mm-hmm. yeah, it's a great yeah, challenge for it. <laughs> it, it it is literally just that and you we we are speaking of it as a challenge but there was this time uh for me where i was thinking that that would be so much easier than the position that i was in so uh we had just moved to this small town in wisconsin and i had i didn't know anybody there and i had no uh, no sense of this part of the world and I was just new to urban sketching as well. So urban sketching, I knew was something I wanted to stick at because it was turning me into an artist and I wanted to be better at art. 
And I, I was simply addicted to this habit. So I needed to draw. But I was in a place which was a small town. So it's not Instagram worthy almost in a sense, in a sense that it's not easy to farm likes from it. Like these are not things that everybody automatically cares about. So uh, I, I started drawing and I started then going about the business of being an artist that I've got drawings, I should sell them. But <laughs> I was just confused by this fact of why would somebody want my drawings of this place? I'm new here. I've been here for a year, a year and a half now. Why do you care? Like there are artists in this town who have been here their whole lives. They know these places. What is the worth of somebody who has never been here looking at your street? What can I offer as a set? Not only are these other qualifiers there that I'm self-taught and it's a drawing with ink and it's just a print that I'm offering, which is so and so big. It's not a piece of fine art. It's not a large painting with all these details. And I don't really know, like, I don't know this park so well. I don't know the history of this street or that old theater. So what do I have to offer? But as I found out, it was actually a superpower. The fact that I was new and the fact that I was looking at things in a fresh light. And uh, so I'm now thinking about uh, some of these other things that you have depicted and there's this other project that uh, that's on your website, which is super fascinating, is how you've covered protests in Portland over the years. And these are protests on different subjects. And uh, they start from, I think, uh, maybe seven or eight years ago and uh, succeeding onwards to the various issues of our times. And I watched this talk that you gave at the USK Symposium in Chicago in 2017. You were talking about drawing as resistance. Incidentally, that symposium was super important in my life. Uh, it was the year that I was in Chicago and I had just discovered urban sketching that time. And I had sort of gate crashed that symposium in a sense uh, because I didn't know how to get a pass. I found out about things too late. But uh, in, that, in that talk, you speak about growing up in a city known for its protests. And I'm, again, I'm thinking about what makes us draw a certain thing? What pulls us towards certain subject matters? So uh, I want to ask you a little bit about this, these growing up years and uh, the, the fascination that they built in you for not just as an artist, but even as a person about this, about citizen activity, about uh, documenting unrest and about seeing people speak back to the powers in their lives. So can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and your youth and how you grew up to see protests as a place in civil society? Well, the interesting thing about growing up in Russia is is I grew up in St. Petersburg, which was the city historically of the three revolutions, just because it was the seat of the, uh, the czarist government. So it was a monarchy. We had the palace with the with the czars, and they over the course of the 20th century, we just happened to be the site of revolutions. However, when I was growing up, protest, dis civil disobedience, and still is to this day, is very much discouraged in 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 Russia. The the government tends to be authoritarian, so there's there's not a lot of civil disobedience that is going on, at least not on the scale that we're used to seeing. In, in the town where I currently reside, <laughs> which is Portland, Oregon, uh, the site of the longest, most sustained uh, protests in the course of just 2020, 
I think we had over a hundred years of of a hundred days. I'm sorry of 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 civil disobedience and protests happening here in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder. But even before that, the um, the act of of going out on the street is sort of the the second nature to um, to my neighbors to the people who live here. And um, I think initially that for me, the interest started in, in just sort of seeing people being active in a public sphere. It's, it's always the, the energy of, of multitudes of people um, in Portland. Folks tend to express themselves. They, they dress up in costumes. They're very clever signs. So it's, it's once again, the interest starts with that visual material, visual information of course, as a as a citizen myself, as a as a person who's in, in, engaged politically, I was very much disturbed by what was happening politically in the country. So it was also a form of therapy to be with people out on the street and and protesting the atrocious things that were happening in um, between 2016 and 2020, especially in the uh, government spheres. So. It started both as a therapy and as a visual interest and as a source of, of energy. Um, when I draw in the midst of, of something like a protest, it's I feel of myself as being kind of in the eye of a hurricane because I get completely focused and very, very calm with my sketchbook. I have the, the tools to kind of stabilize things so I can I can draw even when people push me from different directions. <laughs> sometimes there's tear gas firing so I've kind of grew accustomed to the to different circumstances and and disturbances and I kind of like it I feed from from that energy I love having um, I also like drawing you know just at parades and concerts and things like that for for the same reason of just feeding off the energy of the crowd and and finding that um the louder, the crazier things are around me, the more focused and centered I become inside uh, between me and my sketchbook and the lines that I'm drawing. Yeah. <laughs> so it's both superficial and <laughs> has some historic nature, I suppose, in the, in the fact that I grew up in the, in the city that had a lot of uh, its share of tumultuous history, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about how you mentioned like being jostled by the crowd and how that helps you to almost be more focused on your work. And it seems to me that sketching at a at a at an event or at a in a situation like that almost helps you center a sense of purpose for what you're doing more than if you were sketching comfortably in a cafe or in any kind of beautiful spot. Because why not? Anybody could be doing that here. So uh, I want to ask you about the value of being in a protest as a sketcher, and, and not only in terms of the product that you're making for others to see, but for yourself, the value as a person, and then the and you know in comparison to the value as a sketcher for you to be in a protest. Yeah. So just to kind of reiterate what I what I said um, already before, it's it's a form of it's a form of therapy. It's a form of um, the same reason people come to to rallies and protests. It, they they feel fundamentally 
disturbed by what they're seeing or they feel in opposition or they feel strong uh, sense of support. So it's, it's sort of this group processing act as it were. And as, um, not as an artist, but as a person, it's it's incredibly powerful and therapeutic to be part of that. But also as an artist, I have the skill to to document it, to make it part of our sort of visual history, to have a record of it. Once again, words, images, shapes, colors, whatever was happening at that moment, it just sort of all kind of gets thrown on the page. <laughs> Sometimes it's it's so incohesive, and then it it kind of starts to to make a little bit of of sense in the same way uh, a protest is, right? It's it's just this chaos, and people are yelling and screaming, and nothing makes sense. But then you're sort of okay. I think that's that's what it was. That's that energy translates into this. We are grieving. We are not happy. The status quo is not all right. So what is it? You know, it's it's both chaos and cohesion. Yeah. And, and now I'm, I'm speculating, uh, does a protest also help us to not see the drawing we make only for its technical beauty? It feels like then the idea of communicating something becomes even more clearer. Absolutely. There's, there's no technical beauty. I don't think so much about whether my shapes are too proportion, whether my um, perspective is correct, whether it's such a mess. A, a lot of times somebody pushes me and there's, there's a line. So I have to work with, uh, with that. So it's, it's, um, it's sort of an experience, not so much a cohesive composition and drawing. You you draw your raw experience of something. Yeah. And that feels like such a great lesson for any artist to know that, uh, to uh, at least to, uh, to confront the idea of drawing on location as an experience rather than uh, uh, attaching these labels of perfectionism and perfectionist related outputs to it. Um, now, uh, again, we've, we've kind of spoken about uh, different forms of media when covering a certain thing. But uh, now with the protest in mind, I find that also, again, very interesting. What is the now uh, protests are especially interesting because they are so polarizing, like you have people who are on the side of the protest and you have almost an equal number of people in the case of America who are on the other side of the protest, whether they are at the location or not. So what is the value of documenting a protest in the form of sketches or art or, uh, you know, quick paintings? How does that differ from all the other, other coverage we already see of protest in the form of quick videos and TikToks and CNN is doing its thing and there are, uh, you know, there are photographers on the spot. How does, uh, is, is there a difference in the way it is regarded by people? That's a good question, not just in terms of of drawing, documenting protests in drawing, but also documenting anything in drawing. What is the value of having that artist's perspective on something versus, oh, you know, we can have a thousand photographs as opposed to just one drawing. Um, as, as an artist reporter, what I feel you're doing is you're distilling a period of time 
into your into your work. It's not a snapshot like a, a photograph of of a sec of a second capture of one moment. When you're creating a drawing, it usually takes at least a few minutes, probably realistically from 45 minutes to a couple of hours. And so everything that happens, the before, during, and after of that period gets time-lapsed into one two-dimensional representation uh, with you know, whatever level of technique, whatever tools you have at the moment, whoever pushed you to draw that line that you didn't intend, it is the the time lapse of of that event of that experience, and at any point you can add something to it. Whereas the photography or a photograph is kind of frozen in time of that of that moment. You can also add uh, your impressions, the words that you hear. So it all becomes this once again this this time lapse of a, of an entire experience. Also. You don't draw unlike a, a camera that captures everything, all the details uh, that maybe are not that important, that are distracting. You are an editor of what makes makes it into your drawing. The, the superfluous detail is is not there. So things that are not there are almost as important as things that you did choose to capture. So you're zeroing your audience's attention on the on the important things that from your perspective, that, that happened there, the important details that happened there. It's a process of, of elimination and also leaving a lot up to imagination. So things that you didn't draw that the audience has to complete. <laughs> and so it's a more participatory experience for them to also absorb what you draw, what you drew, what you captured, and fill in the pieces that are missing. Right. Yeah. I've, I've uh, actually, I've, I've said something similar to that in a previous episode. I was saying that a drawing is an invitation to engage because it has less information and because it's not complete, the viewer is invited to complete it themselves with objects from their own world, imagining the colors in some situations or placing that event in a scene that they would recognize and therefore sort of embracing it a little bit, bringing it a little closer to their own life. And I find that, I find that, I find that a very interesting and a very powerful feature of art that in our jadedness and our cynicism, we don't afford that same value to photography and to videos. I'm also thinking about uh, how it resets our expectations. Like uh, now you're in the general field of journalism yourself. So uh, you would be better placed to tell me about this. There is a certain kind of expectation or a certain kind of uh, equation that people have with media that captures the world as it is. So photographs and videos. And it seems to me that that does not exist with photos. I could show someone something on a, a subject that would otherwise offend them if it was a photograph, but as a drawing, it perhaps does not. How, how do you feel about this, especially when you're covering something that is a little polarizing in society? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of conversation right now in in the as as journalists are also trying to reinvent or reimagine the future of of our profession. Um, there's a term called non-extractive 
journalism where when you go in into sensitive situations, when you're dealing with vulnerable communities, how do you report in a way that doesn't cause further harm to this to these populations, to these individuals? So I think that's where artists, reporters have a bigger role to play. I don't know if the word subjective is the right word here, but you are preserving you're preserving anonymity to a person to a certain degree when you represent them in drawing. You're also honoring them with your time, with your attention, with your skill. Something that is, I think, for artists is 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 a better place uh, to do than than for photographs. And mm-hmm. and I think certain subjects, for a good reason, would feel more comfortable to be represented that way. There's a uh, a famous project that uh, I think was actually done in Chicago that dealt with uh, immigrant populations with undocumented populations where instead of being photographed, uh, subjects were represented through drawings. Yeah, that that tallies with a couple of conversations I've had on similar subjects. Uh, one was my episode with George Butler, who is a British war illustrator. And I was asking him the same question about why, why an illustration, like why why should you sitting in Syria with paint and ink matter today when we can see it instantaneously? And he said, amongst other things, his uh, one quote that stands out for me is he said that the illustration is biased towards the subject. No matter who he depicts, he has to find something to admire in what he sees. And that is the only way to produce art. So he was specifically talking in context to drawing prisoners in a Syrian jail and how these were potentially violent offenders. But he had to, in the act of drawing the curves of somebody's face, you have to find something you appreciate. And then that is what gets communicated to the other person who is looking at your art. And the goal then, as he put it, was to to rehumanize the things that we are sort of we have sort of dehumanized and we are desensitized to because of this influx of information that is upon us from wherever we go whatever we whatever screen we look at i'm i'm also thinking of how uh, i spoke to zenab tambawala in mumbai and she did this amazing urban sketchers project documenting uh, various artisans in mumbai and we were talking about exactly this this subject came up that once they found out that she was not going to be extractive, that she wasn't there to take a picture or get a quote and get out, that she would actually spend time with them. And these were people on the fringes of society in some cases, uh, not legally doing the work that they were doing. They Their attitudes towards her completely changed once they looked at what she was doing and they regarded what she was doing as an act of appreciation. Whereas the photography medium, while it could exactly still be that and still carry all of those same sentiments, is regarded in society as an extractive act and something that's violating someone's privacy or is going to malign them or be taken out of context in some way. Absolutely. I know I know her work with interviewed her and um, I was so moved by her project. And of course, um, the work of George Butler is always super inspirational. So, yes, obviously those um, artist sketchers, which I I hope our midst grows grows and more people are inspired to to tell stories in this way, to approach people, not to be afraid. Um, 
I think as we as we do this work, we find that it's it forces you to practice empathy. It forces you to to hone on skills that are so far beyond just the technique of of producing a drawing. That is the the potential for for challenges, for growth, for evolution, for storytelling is just immense. Right. Yeah. Now speaking about growing this tribe because this is something that is so valuable to do there is so much mistrust of institutional news and coverage and the more the people who can share their worlds in honest ways and be perceived as being honest the better it might be for society can you tell me a little bit now speaking with respect to protests about the logistics of how you would go how you go about doing these things in a city like portland where there are so many protests happening how do you decide where you're going to be how do you choose a location how do you assess danger levels around you how do you decide that i'm comfortable enough now to spend half an hour here whether you're standing or you are perched somewhere that is a little more comfortable uh, what what is the process of evaluating these different criteria before you you get started into a sketch and you feel reasonably safe i guess i don't do a lot of prep work especially in regards to safety the 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 work of of going to protests was was fairly easy because the the locations were fairly predictable there's um and there's a certain rhythm and cadence to them especially to the to the protests of of 2020 um people would gather you would notice the same kind of set of characters <laughs> the, the 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 rhythm it was almost theatrical in a way because you you knew what was going to happen at what point to to even the point of um, when the, the tear gas would be dispersed you, you know you could sort of predict after a while of 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 how things would would take place and and what would happen so it's i think after a while i it, it's sad to say I kind of lost interest just because it became kind of very repetitive and, and, and choreographed in a way. Um, but the, the resistance movement of uh, between 2017 and 2019, I remember going to series of rallies. Each one had its own theme, its own goal, its own sort of audience. Sometimes the set of characters would still be the same, but there were uh, pro science. It's, it's, it's sounds almost, hilarious to say it right now that we have to have a pro-science uh, rally but there was one <laughs> uh, climate justice social justice there were um, a lot of protests associated with the particular bans that the administration was putting out there was a protest or a rally in support of the DACA recipients so there was more variety the locations were different so you could have different sets of I, I always try to kind of show the place where something is also happening so and as far as the my personal safety and, and when do I feel I, I try to get there a little bit before to kind of understand the the flow of it and the layout I um start drawing as soon as I'm there and I, I just I used a lot of this concertina books where I could just keep going, keep going. When something is, is interesting happening, I could open a new fold and go back and finish the, the previous spread. So I also established my own, my own rhythm and my own way of, of, of doing it. 
Yeah. And it also sounds to me like to be mobile in those situations, to be ready to get up and go to another location for various reasons, you would also need to pare down the supplies that you're carrying and the tools that you would work with. How does that look for you? Like what is what are these essential things that you would use to depict, especially I'm curious because these are very dynamic situations very often. So what what are the things that you use to depict the, the uh, to capture the dynamic activity? versus activity that's a little more uh, relaxed in a place where you are more relaxed and have more time. Yes, so it's it's important to have first of all the tools that you know very well. It's not a place to bring the tools that you're experimenting with like oh there's a new brand of marker I always wanted to try. <laughs> so you just take the tools that you know in your sleep how they work what will when the pen gets stuck what what to do. Um so my very, very minimal bare bones setup of, of a water brush, uh, my box of watercolors that I always carry with me, and a black ink pen, that's, that's plenty. Things that you can um, hold in your hand while you're standing. So practice that. You can, you can hold your sketchbook and, and still maneuver the, the two tools. You can put them in your hair or in your pocket. Uh, while you're using a brush, you know, my pen is in my pocket and, and switch on the fly. So keep things very, very minimal and very familiar. Yeah, yeah, great points. Now, Rita, let's take a short break here. And then I would like to come back to ask you more about uh, your educational background, the kind of things you do in your other jobs. And the, especially I'm curious about the, the various things you've done with the Urban Sketches organization. So we'll get right back to that part of the conversation. I have a lot of questions left now that I'm scrolling through my list. So this is also going to be a long second half. But uh, let's take a short break for now. hope you're enjoying this conversation. If you'd like to tell me about it, let's talk. I share my best insights from every episode in my publication, The Sneaky Art Post, which goes out to thousands of readers every week. Check out the latest post, which is about this episode, using the link in the show notes and comment on it to start a conversation. I'd love to hear from you. At this point in the episode, I usually like to take a minute to thank my sponsors. So please bear with me. You see, the Sneaky Art Podcast is run by me, but it is supported 100% by listeners like you. It's very easy to support this show, so let me tell you a few ways to do it. If you like this episode, buy me a coffee. That's it. Use the link in the show notes to buy me one, two, or three cups of coffee, whatever suitably indicates your appreciation for the work that I'm putting in. Coffee makes my world go round and keeps me working hard at my desk. If you've enjoyed more than a couple of episodes and you're starting to feel that maybe you really like this show, I think it might be time to become a sneaky art insider. Insiders are the super listeners who pledge to support my work with a small but regular contribution, either monthly or annually. In exchange, they get all kinds of exclusive material from the show, including updates about upcoming guests and bonus segments that are not released to the public. Use the link in the show notes to learn more about this and for the chance to sign up. I'm currently offering a special discount just for podcast listeners. 
The last, but certainly not the least way to support me is by simply sharing this episode with a friend who may enjoy it. Post it on your socials and please don't forget to tag me. If you're using Apple Podcasts, rating the show and leaving a review also does a lot of good. So please consider doing that. Okay, now Rita and I are both refreshed and ready to begin part two of our conversation. Thank you for your patience. Let's get back into it. All right, uh, we're back. So Rita, uh, now I am also I am I am a person who has been educated in a certain field, and now I'm working in a completely different field. And sometimes I'm asked by people about whether I feel that those years that I spent, because I got a master's degree and I was halfway through a PhD program in in neuroscience and biomechanics, and I'm asked about whether I feel that those years are kind of wasted or I lost some years that I could have already made headway as an artist or as a writer. But I, I don't think that way. I feel that everything we study and everything we study deeply adds up inside us and makes us the person that we are. And no knowledge is ever wasted. It is reflected in some way, especially if you're in a field in which you express yourself so deeply, like art and communication, that everything that we've acquired sort of finds a way to express itself and to reflect who we become. So I'm looking at your education background and you've studied psychology and then you went on to study linguistics. And then again, you went on to study interface design. Um, I want to know how these things add up inside you and how they express themselves. Great question. And just what you said resonates with me so strongly. It's never a wasted time, even when it, when it feels like you're going down a path and it's, it's a dead end that experience becomes part of who you are. I grew up in a family that valued education very strongly. So I, as a result, am chronically over, over-educated and over um, a hoarder of, of degrees of sorts. <laughs> it's a strange thing to be hoarding, but um, right now I find myself in my um, third advanced degree and it's 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 interesting to be doing this again because a lot of it is is sort of um, kind of perfunctory in a way of doing homework and assignments and projects. But it's I feel like everything that I've studied, discovered, all the different paths that I've taken and ended up either going back or or turning or finding another door. Um, they have contributed to to the person that that I am. I am. I feel like incredibly privileged to have the opportunity to to be so educated and to be um, constantly on a search for my true passion. So, completely um, in agreement with with what you've you've said that it's it's. Um, I think everything that we study informs our our experience and and leads us to kind of discover new new passions and new ways to to be. Right, right, absolutely. And uh, I I find that as as just as humans, we are now living in an age where access to information has never been easier. Access to education and to very very arcane knowledge has never been easier. And in a sense, everybody who's working in a certain field today is constantly learning 
and is constantly on a path of various kinds of self-education. So I find this very interesting that you're following almost two tracks of one being of institutional learning. So being affiliated with a university and a, a structured way to learn a very specific thing that has been understood and is being passed down to you. And you're also pursuing a path of self-education and your own intrinsic motivation. And I see that in simply you wanting to be a journalist and in the way that you have also learned your art because you don't have an art degree. So uh, what are some ways that the former, so the institutional learning and the education you've been through and are going through, how does that help you or how does that inform you with the path that you've taken yourself out of your own interests? Hmm. Wow. That is a deep question that I never gave any thought to. I think uh, institution uh, to call it an institutional learning is, um, is to probably give a nod to the fact that you have to kind of jump through the hoops um, to achieve a degree. You have to fulfill a certain number of requirements. You have to do a lot of educational work that you necessarily are not super excited about, which is, um, we call it sometimes jumping through the hoops. You have to do tests and exams. And, and I think no one is, is too crazy about that, but it gives you, um, I think a sense of, of kind of being in a herd because you're, you're comparing yourself against your classmates, you're building networks, you're building relationships, um, you also have a certain set of expectations that are placed on you. I think it, it, it creates this sort of a network and also a, a discipline structure for you from which you can explore. And then it also exposes you to things that you could probably not discover on, on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the readings, the, the, I don't know, guest speakers, um, the connections that you build, the the projects that you're forced to do that maybe you're not excited about, but that lead to something else. So I think it's uh, the way I look at it, it's, it's the, the necessary evil of, of kind of building, building this new uh, persona for yourself through, Mm -hmm. through, through a new profession. My long um, professional life in, in design sort of ended. So I had to start, from scratch in a way being an artist and now kind of bridging it with the practice of journalism. So, uh, you know, being in an an institution allows you to, to build the connections again from, from the start using the, the knowledge and the layers of, of information and learning that you've already accumulated. Right. That's, that's such a good point. I I especially uh, like the one you said about, learning certain things that you might not think are useful or interesting, but then you find the value in it afterwards. And this is definitely something that on a path of self-education, you might find yourself ignoring very easily because of course, everything is self-motivation and nobody's making you do something. But sometimes you need somebody to make you do something so that you understand what it was all about. And uh, otherwise it's a three minute YouTube tutorial and then you're an expert in <laughs> right. like I'm an, I'm an expert in economics these days because <laughs> I've listened to two podcasts. Um, but, uh, so now thinking again about this education, um, there's this, uh, analogy or this idea that I've referred to in recent conversations with my guests, 
um, when we're thinking about the way that the trajectory of our lives pans out. And sometimes when we look at another person, especially if you're looking at someone that we admire a lot, we tend to think about who we see them as, and then we imagine their life as a straight line leading up to that person. So they knew they wanted to do this, and then they went about doing X, Y, Z, and here they are. But life doesn't often pan out this way. And so the idea that I was discussing, and I first discussed it with Kosh Yakuna in uh, episode 29, which I will link in the show notes for interested listeners, was the concept of gardeners versus architects. And uh, this was articulated uh, as a means of understanding fantasy fiction writing by George R.R. R. Martin, who wrote the, the novels for the Game of Thrones. And uh, what he was talking about was that there are two ways to construct a novel. And we can think about this in terms of constructing any foundation of learning or any activity or any job even. And uh, the, the approach of the architect, as he articulated it, is that you start with a plan, you accumulate the materials, you have a sense for what you need, and you have a sense of how it's going to end and what it's going to look like is very precisely laid out in all different views, why it's there, why it's like that at that location. Everything is known to you, and then you lay the first brick. But the path of the gardener is very different. A gardener inherently has to have some element of faith, even though there is a lot of knowledge and a lot of information going into things. And there is a process here, but you're not quite in control of the final form of what you become or what your garden becomes. You, Your job essentially after a point is to give water and nutrients to the different plants that grow to take their own shape which you can prune to some extent, but then there are things you can't control. So thinking about this with respect to life and then with respect to the different fields in which you have studied, did you have a sense for what you wanted to do with your education at those different times? Were you a different person every time you studied those things with a different sense of where you wanted to go with them? And have how how did... How did, uh, did things change along the way? Did you change along the way as you went from one educational tier to another? You're forcing me to think of my life in terms of, uh, I've never thought of it before. <laughs> and the analogy of, of a garden and architect is, is interesting because both, I think, have um, a sort of a, long-term vision and patience in by design it's just uh, a different way of, of of planning and I think my circuitous and sometimes redundant educational um, path has been short on both patience and long-term <laughs> planning but what it's been always motivated by is this constant reinvention of myself and curiosity about the world and and how it functions um the the passion for languages passion for for art now passion for journalism for design before that it was always this this profound interest in in the world around me and i know i'm i'm not a buddhist so i don't believe in multiple lives i only have one life so i want to have the experience of of being those different things and just kind of pursuing my my passions i can't imagine 
being a graphic designer, for example, for most of my life, or a doctor, or any of the noble pursuits that uh, that I've even tried tried on or contemplated, at least. It's it's it's. Uh, I know it's a little bit ADD to <laughs> to constantly reinvent yourself, and you can't go too deep because life is short and time is limited, of course. Um, but um, I guess I can't help myself. Is is all I can say. <laughs> there's there's not a greater design. <laughs> It would be so convenient if you did believe in multiple lives. You could leave some of that education to the next iteration. Seriously, seriously. <laughs> so tell me about in the middle of all of this stuff, when and how did urban sketching crash into your life? Yes, so uh, dis- the discovery of urban s- sketching has been um, a life-changing experience I think for me and and for many folks even the ones that you have interviewed on your podcast and I think it it just kind of led to several light bulbs firing all at once Um, at first there was this overwhelming sense of of belonging because we've discovered that there's a number of us all around the world who are deriving this sick pleasure from from drawing and documenting and and <laughs> looking with our laser eyes through through other people and <laughs> just staring <laughs> staring this this kind of voyeuristic <laughs> pursuit and and this obsessive desire to to draw and document um to get better to to learn techniques to to try new tools so that was um, that was a f- fantastic feeling of of community and belonging and and not feeling like a, a solo freak anymore because there were others uh, dedicated to the same thing. Of course, it led to um, developing more intentional drawing practice. So I didn't start drawing when I discovered urban sketching, but I've changed completely the way I approach. Um, Keeping a sketchbook, for example, of, of always having it uh, with me, of dating, of of writing more, of um, being more intentional about finishing or bringing every drawing to some sort of a stage where it feels like it's not just a, a, a floating exercise, uh, floating on a page. And then finally, it um, it kind of reiterated something that I already knew intuitively is that it's a way of, of being. It's not just an act. It's not just a hobby. It's a way of, of relating to the world by drawing your force to look, to experience, to tune in with all of your senses. You are, um, you have a different kind of understanding of your place in, in, in the world as well. And then finally, the the idea of drawing, and that's something that's in the Urban Sketching Manifesto, as showing your world and telling a story um, through one drawing at a time. That was something that is so pro- powerful and that I appreciate so much that kind of led me to, to journalism um, in a very natural way through something, through a skill, through a practice that I already liked and enjoyed and, and um, constantly grow in. 
um, is is using it as a tool to to tell stories, to share information, to promote understanding um, all the goals that the, the journalist would have. Right, and I feel like those goals are still central to your uh, to your life now, since you've been involved with the Urban Sketchers Board, and you're currently the Education Director, if I'm not wrong. Can you tell me a little bit about what that role means and what kind of things you you try to like? Wh- what is the what is the uh, the purpose, the wider purpose to a general you know a general audience of Urban Sketching? Why? Uh, what kind of things does an Education Director? take take responsibility for well i think in a very general abstract sense um my role is to promote the uh the movement and its mission um it's it's to educate people um in in a more concrete way of of about certain techniques and 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 help build the program of, of workshops or of lectures you know, here's it could be some as as concrete as this is how you you draw a human form, or this is how you mix colors, to very kind of high level, um, higher steps on the ladder of uh, abstraction, as it were, concepts of educating general public about what urban sketching is and the power of of on location drawing, and the the perspective that it brings to to the world, the power of um, spreading um, information of sharing our drawings of building a community of expanding our movement um, so it's there the, the work of <laughs> the education director is is never never ends yeah yeah sounds like it uh, and since the pandemic of course You've also started this wonderful series of USK talks, which are also disseminating this kind of this kind of sentiment, telling people about the value of urban sketching and the different ways that urban sketching can can help our lives as individuals, but also give something back to our society. Tell me a little bit about um, like I want to talk to you generally about the conversations in these USK talks as well. But firstly, I'm I'm curious to know as an organizer behind it what was it like the circumstances in the early pandemic when you decided to do this and to plan it and to coordinate it remotely with people around the world and then to finally make it happen how, how what was that experience like well it was very early in the pandemic and very early in my role as the education director that all of a sudden our world has completely changed and shut down and my understanding of what i was supposed to be doing and that is building the workshop program, maybe training instructors, maybe um, teaching myself, coming with with lectures and workshops to different locations and, and sort of promoting the idea of, of sketching on location. All of this was no longer possible. So, okay, what do we do instead? <laughs> Several of us started talking and thinking, okay, we need to, um, we need to continue to to educate and inspire our community and, and also mostly give a little bit of, of, of sense of shared experience of, of, you know, the community is there and it's central to the idea of urban sketching. So we decided to use, um, I think initially the platform of, of Instagram live chats and, um, 
as the group grew, we also realized how this was giving us purpose. It was also giving us the the sense of working together on a program like that. We all had different ideas, different backgrounds. We're all in different time zones. So all of our meetings are usually at some crazy hour for at least half of us. <laughs> but it was a, it's, it's a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful project. It was a, a, a massive effort. Someone who as, as yourself has been doing it for a while now, it's, it's a ton of work. Uh, behind the scenes planning and and relying on technology that at times is imperfect and <laughs> it's a lot of a, a lot of energy and effort and resources that goes to to keep something like that not only starting it but also keeping it going for a while right yeah uh, so uh on the subject of keeping it going, tell me a little bit about some of these talks and some of the the ones that you have felt have been particularly impactful on the community and in your outreach efforts. Yeah, so initially we started with the interviews of sort of the, the star instructors in the urban sketching movement. I think it was a correct decision to kind of bring the, the most familiar faces and voices and, and drawing styles Everybody was incredibly discouraged. Uh, there was a lot of stress and anxiety related to the virus. We did not know what was going to happen. We did not know how long it would last. I guess we still don't know that. <laughs> but having um, having these familiar faces, I think, and these beautiful drawings and showing how, okay, we're in, in isolation, we're in lockdowns, we're in different stages of this around the world uh, but we have this common experience, and this is how this these folks that you know that you've learned from that who have inspired you, this is how they're dealing with with the situation because we're all in it, right? They all have they we all had to cancel all of our plans, all of our workshops, all of our work. We're all sitting in little rooms, and so how do you continue to draw? Especially urban sketching is something that's reliant on you being out in the world. So how do you do that? indoors how do you do that in confinement <laughs> and so that was that was something that powered us for the for the first season primarily right and as we were uh planning the the second season i was really pushing forward this idea of storytelling and reportage i really wanted us um as the leaders in the movement and as as the hosts and 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 um leaders behind the show to focus on that and bring it to the forefront. We had the, the platform built, we had the attention, uh, we had the interest. So I thought it was important to, to not just talk about the techniques and, and um, tools and all those things that we all are passionate and love talking about, mm -hmm. but also go a little bit deeper and show some great examples of, of, people who are sketchers who are primarily moved and driven by by the storytelling potential and what are some subjects that you can cover and what are some stories can you tell and how do you deal with the fact that maybe you don't have the skills the um, skills of, of drawing perfect human anatomy yet you do want to tell a story about a person so Right. We we brought in a larger variety of, of of skill sets and voices and sort of um 
newness to the to, to the movement. We had some amazing examples of 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 someone with maybe who is just beginning in urban sketching and yet has a great story to tell and has that passion. So that was sort of the driving force behind the season too, which I thought was successful. Right. And um, if I may ask, what are, what are the plans going forward, not only for USK talks, but also as education director in such, you know, these are such uncertain times that it's not very easy to plan more than like, I don't think it's responsible to plan even six months ahead. You never know what, what happens. So how does, how does one go about strategizing and making, uh, uh, you know, implementing ideas in such times? It's, it's a heartbreaking exercise <laughs> and sometimes heartbreaking exercise where we're supposed to have an, a, an event uh, together for planning the, the next season uh, because of the pandemic, the, the plants are constantly being postponed as we're waiting for um, the, the situation to improve, the safety to improve, but they're also, because the team is so international, there are different standards of, of um, travel and quarantining that are, that are um, present in, in different places. So it's, it's, a little bit difficult at the moment to tell with any certainty. And, and um, I think on my personal teaching front, it's, I, I keep postponing um, workshops, <laughs> hoping for things yeah. to, <laughs> hoping for things to improve. Yeah. It's literally just moving it from one month to another and then another, and then you hope one of them can stick. So uh, on the subject of teaching, um, now you teach these independent workshops where you're teaching urban sketching and these ideas around these specific subsets of urban sketching that you are good at. And you're also teaching, like we were just discussing, institutional programs and institutional courses and institutional education. Uh, you're also teaching at universities. So just uh, speaking on a very surface level, what is a striking difference between these two endeavors and what is a very big similarity between them um i don't know if there's uh the workshops that i teach independently are more skill set focused so it allows me to cover a topic that i feel is relevant to mm -hmm. to people um i used to teach them on location so it was mostly a local um a local crowd of of sketchers sometimes people come from other places um in the northwest or even a little bit further away but it would be a very specific um subject and sometimes it's something that i'm struggling with myself or that i was struggling with and and um i have this kind of immense take immense pleasure and creativity in designing the titles and the, and the topics that I think would be, would be fun to cover. So there's, they're shorter, they're, they're more targeted as it were. And um, teaching those online was, uh, was an interesting experience for the last couple of years. I, I had students from all over the world, different time zones, different experiences, different languages, so that part was was fantastic. The fact that they can look at me drawing in real time. I think uh, technology has made this possible, which is something that I also hope to, to keep in the future in some form. But I am very anxious to return to in-person teaching and, and actually doing it 
on location, the, the urban sketching style, as it were. Right. Yes. And as far as the, the university courses, different art schools um, that I teach with, it's a more... Um, it's a more kind of academic progression course. Um, the one that I'm started teaching this fall uh, for Parsons School of Design in New York is called Reporting the Visible World, Documentary mm-hmm. Storytelling. So it kind of goes to the core of my interest of combining art and journalism and um, showing how as artists we could be reporters and how journalists could be artists <laughs> and bridging bridging the gap and, and sharing some fantastic examples of both contemporary and historic artist reporter work. So that's a nine-week course that I teach asynchronously through the Parsons School of Design. Right. And this this course is very fascinating to me. Uh, I'm uh, In a nine-week course, do you also have a similar amount of discretion in how you structure your the education that you're going to be giving out and the lessons you want them to imbibe. Um, w- what is that like? How does a nine-week course on this subject break down? It's very interesting to me because precisely because I have never been in a setting in which I could learn this from somebody giving me a lesson plan. Yes, I had uh, complete freedom in designing the the curriculum, the progression. It's part of the uh, it's part of a certificate where we had different instructors teaching different aspects of, of visual storytelling. So it's it was also very interesting to see how that fits into the into the progression and, and working with other instructors who have different styles. But as far as my course, um, the progression is is that felt natural to me is is to kind of start with things that are less dynamic by nature that help us to establish this setting, as it were, for the story. Then to talk about, um, you know, some some elements of technique and, and perspective and things like that, but not too heavy on that. And then to move on to more um, dynamic subjects, drawing people, drawing crowds, drawing people in motion, and then how do you bring all of these elements together to tell a story? How do you think about the components that make up a story? What makes a good visual story? How is a drawing of a building different from a story about a building? <laughs> so um, those are sort of the some of the subjects that um, topics that I cover, of course, with a lot of examples, like I said, from from the historic and, and contemporary artists reporters who are doing this kind of work yeah i'm going to i'm going to double click on one of those things that i i loved that question how does please tell me how does the drawing of a building differ from the <laughs> of a building you have to take a course <laughs> <laughs> no you can't you can't gatekeep this knowledge this is this uh, this is a chance for you to is, for you to draw more students to parsons let's let's think of yes, it that way <laughs> this is the this is the insider information so i think um since the beginning urban sketching has been um has been the subject of this controversy or or or, or this very intense debate um we have talked about how is it urban sketching if you're drawing something um, from a reference? Is it urban sketching right. only because you have to be at a place on location? And then how do we define on location? 
how do we define a story from separate a story from from building so i think the requirement um that we always kind of put forth as something that separates drawing uh from urban sketching or any kind of visual interpret interpretive um, art form from urban sketching is that you have to be there on location why that requirement why do we put that forth? Um, well, I think the, the, the reason for it's not an arbitrary thing that, no, you have to actually sit on that sidewalk. <laughs> Otherwise, what you're doing is not urban sketching. Right. Um, and the requirement comes from the fact that you have to be in a place for some time to, to be able to, to tell a story about it. Right, you can draw. You can draw this building from from a reference. Um, you could probably produce better perspective, better results, but you wouldn't know that somebody came out and and started having a heated phone conversation and then ended up crying. Um, right. You would not know that that is something that was part of of being there. So it requires you to be there. Yeah. And by by the virtue of you actually sitting on that sidewalk, being uncomfortable, being in the elements, smelling unpleasant smells and, and being pushed around or yelled at by the passersby, by the virtue of that experience, you have a story to tell. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a that's a great answer, by the way, because uh, that story that you have to tell in this subliminal way is told even through the brush strokes that you make, whether they are hurried, whether whether they are relaxed, whether it if it's a sunny day, does that play an effect on your watercolor output? And if you're not comfortable at that, so if I'm working just with ink and I'm not comfortable at that location, how quickly do I go over certain things? That becomes part of the story that I tell. Uh, I asked this question partly because uh, this specific question of a building somehow came up in how I was, uh, I framed a workshop proposal when I was an instructor at the USK Chicago seminar in 2019. And uh, my workshop was all about drawing people in the city because I think people are central to the city and any urban sketch without humanity in it is wrong. That's a very bold statement to make, but why not? It's my podcast. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the idea the, that I was formulating was that if I don't, if I draw a cafe, but I don't, and I'm sitting in the cafe and I'm drawing everything that I see in front of me, but there's no person in that sketch. My argument is, is it still a cafe if there is nobody drinking coffee inside it? Is it, is it a build, is a building tall if I'm trying to draw a tall building, if I don't put a person next to it for scale, what is a building tall in comparison to? What makes an interior space, any interior space into a cafe if there is nobody drinking coffee in it? Is a coffee mug even a coffee mug if someone's not holding it with coffee inside it? It's just a piece of ceramic which has been molded a certain way, but what makes it a coffee mug? And I, my argument, because this is how I prefer to make it, is that the presence of humanity in all urban structures, and we were discussing this before when we were talking about the commonality of urban experiences, is that urban structures don't really have a reason to exist in the world. They only exist because we use them in a certain way. So if 
tomorrow in a dystopian landscape, there are no more humans and we leave all this architecture behind. No building is a tall building anymore because there's no reference scale. No cafe is a cafe anymore because it's just an interior space constructed a certain way with certain materials. So the presence of humanity is what gives context and meaning to these various items. And sort of the presence of the sketcher, like you say, makes that drawing into a, into a story. Because now, even if you don't want to, you are part of the, the narrative of that painting or that drawing. Now, um, I'm thinking about, like, I've seen a lot of your work over these last couple of weeks. And usually you see an artist's work and you can sort of tell the things they tend to draw and the things they tend to avoid, the things that sort of fascinate them and the things that they're happy to let go of. Anybody who looks at my drawings can see that I hate windows and I hate uh, I hate parallel lines. So I don't draw skyscrapers very much except to just cursorily mention them. And that I'm drawn primarily towards human activity is also very easy to tell. But for the life of me, I am not able to tell what is it that particularly fascinates you because I looked at your sketches in Hawaii and the ones recently you were in that sketch tour in northern Portugal. And I'm not able to tell what what like what are the urban fixtures or what are the fixtures of our landscape that that pull your attention. So I don't want to ask you what you don't draw or what you neglect. What I want to ask you is, where do you start when you start a drawing? What makes you decide that this is it? I want to do this. And is that where you begin? Or do you, how do you, how do you get into your pages? Oh, I wish I had one definitive answer. Sometimes you just, sometimes it's just a function of, of, being somewhere and being bored, right? <laughs> you start drawing with 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 that emotion in mind. Are you waiting? You find the 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 meaning of the drawing only after having drawn it. Correct, absolutely correct. Um, but going back to the beginning of our interview, it's it's the question of of what am I trying to to tell and and something that. Um, draws my attention initially is not what ends up being the the, the center point, which I think is 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 why it's sometimes so hard <laughs> to tell mm-hmm. what what is it about. Um, I think in this recent um, sketch to Portugal, um, I I just finished making a, a little film about it, so it's it's fresh in my mind that uh, the quality of light was often the the beginning of of the process and the um following the light was kind of this this abstract beautiful poetic way of of being uh led into a scene in places where i did not speak the language i did not know what to expect um it was following the light but then where does that take me to um is is a lot of times the the stories that that I found or the the conversations and the um, observations that I've made had to do with with once again looking for those elements of common human experience of, of trying to relate to people, um, seeing seeing them enjoying music at an outdoor concert, seeing them enjoying sunsets, um, students um, on a lawn having picnics and and 
enjoying sunsets once again or sunrises. Um, the old folks in the villages in northern Portugal that just have a few inhabitants left that most young people have left for, for uh, lack of opportunities or jobs. So this, this older folks that are there kind of frozen in time, talking to them about how they how they spend their days, what, what moves them, what, um, what memories they have linked to this place. So that's that was kind of the, the 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 driving force for for that project, but for for many of the ones that I that I'm working on. Right now, uh, Sketch Tour Portugal, as I understood it, uh, was in collaboration with or with the invitation of at least the tourism department of Portugal. So uh, I'm I'm curious to know if there was a push and pull between. Uh, motivations personally from your end and expectations as you might perceive if you're doing something like this for somebody else to use in some other context. Um, how did you navigate that? Did you, were you, did you feel completely free to simply explore your curiosity or were there things, and this does not have to be bad, like simply like we were talking about how you uh, go through a course and you do certain things that you didn't think are uh, very much fun, but they add value to you once you've done them. So did you have to go through certain experiences in which you felt the, not compulsion, but perhaps the obligation to depict certain parts that you would not have naturally leaned towards? And this is um, this is where I wish I had some sort of a, a conflict, a controversy to share. But that would be good journalism if there right. was some tension happening between the right. the expectation <laughs> and the and the self expression of an artist. But I have to say that the the absolute beauty of that project uh, was the fact that there were absolutely no expectations from us. There were right. twenty artists who took part um, who were given total freedom to express themselves um, in the way they felt was appropriate and in in the way that inspired them. And uh, it was a unique opportunity. I understand that um, it's very rare that the world presents you with this opportunity to to experience a place and express it the way you want without any kind of propaganda behind it. We had to show only certain aspects or that we had to show, you know, come to Portugal, <laughs> the wine is great. Or <laughs> it was, it was, um, and I have to say, because there were so many artists uh, involved in the design of the program, it was important for for them to to give us the freedom and not to have a certain uh, narrative that they were expecting from us. Right. Yeah. And that sounds like a beautiful way, in fact, to get the best work out of artists. I've done a lot of commissions over the last two or three years. And whenever the client has not given me a brief and just left me to my devices, I have felt, in fact, I have felt the obligation to go two steps further and do even better and really dig, uh, plumb the depths of, you know, these questions of why do I want to sketch? What do I want to show? What can I say with it? Absolutely. Once I don't have these chains on me. Absolutely. Um, That's when we do our best work, right? Is when we're given freedom to do what we what we know how to do and how and yeah. how we know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um in this same trip, I think you also attended the sketchbook festival in France. And I'm I'm really curious about this because the French, it seems, have this wonderful tradition of sketch reportage and travel sketchbooks. 
um can you tell me a little bit about the story behind this and uh, your experience uh, at this festival what was it like mm-hmm. so it's it's a, a festival called uh, rendezvous de carnet de voyage which translates into a, a meeting of of uh travel sketchbooks um artists it's an old festival it's it's i think it was in its 21st iteration so it's been going for a while and it's not only uh, a festival for sketchbook artists it's also a festival for filmmakers and i think to some degree maybe writers and podcasters as well and um it takes place in a town called Clermont-Ferrand which is in sort of the central part of of France it takes place every year in November and um it's it's a big exposition where you you show your work um i showed my uh project about the leprosy colony in kalaupapa there in 2019 and i was back again with the border town projects in this 2021 the past november so it's i think it's a fantastic opportunity to have very direct contact with the audiences usually um formal exhibits do not take place with sketchbooks so to have people leaving through your sketchbook is is both um a little bit unnerving but it's also incredibly liberating <laughs> liberating and rewarding right. to have um as as part of this festival I also had an opportunity to give a few talks which is always fantastic especially um when you have a chance to talk to um young people to 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 kids from high schools and middle schools and tell them about your work tell them about the border and and the experiences of, of living on the border so it was it was a really fantastic way to to share my work yeah um now this this idea of communicating through sketchbooks and uh documenting or chronicling in sketchbooks it seems so much more popular in france as a movement than and it 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 has captured the popular imagination there as a part of part of the things they do part of the culture in a sense than other places and i'm curious about the what is it particularly that has happened there that has caused this and what are some lessons from it that the rest of the world's sketchers should note things that don't occur, seem to occur to us maybe yeah absolutely it's um i think the lessons for the for the cultural institutions not just for the sketchers is is to kind of appreciate and value this this type of um artwork because it's so it's so intimate it's so immediate it's so um in my opinion so much more powerful than than having canvases and museums and and i don't think just because i'm a sketcher myself and i keep a sketchbook but i find that the most revealing experiences encounters with the artists and their work happen through through their sketchbooks so if 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 i visit a museum i'm much more interested to to look at the exhibit on sketchbooks to see the things that they were trying to work out for themselves the notes that they were taking their daily experiences then a commission work um of a big i don't know monarch i'm i'm thinking about goya right now <laughs> and, and how different the experience of looking through his sketchbooks uh versus the the 
commissioned paintings is for you to to really understand what he was living through. Yeah, yeah. And uh, because I am also on this uh, journey of backward self-educating myself, like I discover something and then I go back in time to see how long it's been around and what are these things that are occurring to me today. That, uh, for example, I was in the National Museum in Budapest and it's a fantastic, beautiful museum with so much art in it. And I found out that people have been doing line work. Obviously, people have been doing line work for 600 years and the cross-hatching styles that I'm trying to copy or I'm trying to learn or I'm having breakthroughs in quote-unquote thinking I'm so smart that I figured this out have been figured out by people living 500 years ago. And it was humbling and it was inspiring and it was very uh, motivating to uh, this this idea that so much knowledge is cyclical that we think we are always moving in a linear line going up and up and up but sometimes you're just going around and around and forgetting and rediscovering things from before absolutely when you when you hear um speeches also from 100 100 years ago you you realize that the, the nothing really has changed fundamentally <laughs> we, we always think that we're so far ahead but the, the struggles are the same the experiences are the same absolutely i've been reading uh, books not by but about the writings of people like sartre and um, simone de beauvoir and a lot of uh, like nietzsche and a lot of thinkers of the of 100 years ago uh, 150 years ago and 200 years ago like i've gone as far back as kierkegaard and uh, finding out just this commonality of human experience these things that are always just going to be true and we have not moved forward because we are still the same human beings so I'm able to do this because thanks to the internet, we have access to all of this information and it's just a click away. Um, I want to sort of end on that note. I want to ask you about these, because you're also on these many education journeys. So I want to ask you some of, about some of these resources that you have found most useful to inform your ideas about art, about journalism, about design, uh, even politics and psychology, are there books, podcasts, and resources that you could recommend to anybody listening? I can I can recommend mostly staying uh, in tune with with the world and also challenging yourself from time to time to look at something you've you would never consider looking at. Because the the lessons um, from other disciplines, from other people who are now part of your of your network, could be so eye opening. We had an episode on engineers and and how engineering mindset can can <laughs> influence your art practice. I find it mm-hmm. that this kind of opposite, uh, or maybe it's not as as opposite as as we tend to think, but. You know, we always think of art and, and engineering to be kind of on two opposite spheres, right? Or two opposite opposite ends of your brain. So go to the part that you think is is most opposite from from the way you interpret the world and the way you think. And also outside of, of your bubble, because we are exposed to the same information in uh, in our sphere and we're kind of 
comfortable with it because it, it confirms what we believe and, and it um, validates our way of, of thinking. So it could be said about your mindset, but it could also be said about your art practice or about your um, practice of documenting things and the way you your process works and, and the way we kind of tend to be plugged in into one set of, of one habit of doing uh, things a certain way. So pushing yourself to, to try something, what you would consider the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, though is mind open. That's really great advice. Generally, I have found it very useful in my life to not stay within. And, and I sort of become uncomfortable the moment I become too comfortable. So when as soon as I feel like I'm agreeing with what's happening in my environment, I feel that I'm, I'm this is a misstep and I should quickly find some opposing points of view just so I'm sure about where I'm going. So, so thank you so much. Like Rita, this was a, f- a fantastic conversation for me. I learned many things from listening to you, from hearing your stories. Thank you so much for sharing. And I hope that it will inspire me to express myself a little more in my art. It, I, I try to make it my business to talk more about why I'm drawing what I'm drawing. And maybe it's it's time for me to be a little more participative in my environment instead of always just being sneaky. I invite you to unsneak <laughs> and it's been really um it's been really fantastic. I learned a lot about myself <laughs> in this interview. <laughs> the questions that I I usually don't ask myself of, of myself. So it was very illuminating in that way, but also I wanted to thank you for for doing this show and to acknowledge the amount of of work and thinking and planning that goes into sustaining something like that so i i hope for many more episodes it's it's always fantastic in fact in my reporting the visible world class i've referenced a few of your of your podcasts so it's a great resource for educators it's a great inspiration for sketchers and thank you for doing the work that you're doing yeah thank you thank you so much <laughs>